If you're just joining us today, we are coming to the end of a spring semester, the end of a spring-long series called Old School Theology, looking back to move forward. And when I first started this, I, there was some hesitancy because I am I am that guy who says we should move book by book through um, the Bible, verse by verse, but we did a more topical approach, though it was expositional, it was topical, and we looked, uh, at the beginning at the, at the Ten Commandments, and so we looked at all of chapter 20, and then we went through the Ten Commandments, one each week, and we were talking about holding up the rules that set us free, that many times people say, how can rules set you free? And God gave those rules, uh, in the Ten Commandments. And then after that, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and we walked through Luke 11 the first week and then phrase by phrase through the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And, and then we finished and we're finishing today with the Apostles' Creed. And so what I wanted to show you today, uh, this was actually a tool many people used long ago to take someone through the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. Actually, if you were to go get a book called Growing in Christ by J.I. Packer, he begins with the Apostles' Creed and then the Ten Commandments and then the Lord's Prayer. And I think that's a good approach. And the more I've studied this, the more I've taught it, I, I get it. Once you teach through something, you see the wisdom of those who have gone before you. And there's something special about the Apostles' Creed for summarizing what we believe. There's something incredibly special about the Ten Commandments that if, if the world were to follow these by God's grace and for His glory, it'd be a different place. And the power to pull that off, we absolutely need the Lord's Prayer. But today, we're finishing up the Apostles' Creed, and I want to begin... Uh, with an illustration on the essentials. If you were to go out to the internet and look online of what are the essentials? It's something that's absolutely necessary to get something done, or it is the core characteristics of anything. So much so that this gentleman, Greg McCown, has wrote a book called Essentialism. He's trying to work life down into the pursuit of less, the disciplined pursuit of less. What are the core things you as a person need to do to live your life? Everything has its essentials. If we were talking about business, you have a product or service that you give out for a fee, then you have expenses to pay, and hopefully for revenues. That is that is business 101. If you're on a football team, you have an offense, a defense, and special teams. Without those things, you don't have a football team. Uh, we could go through through it. If you, if I were to say to some of you in here, I know some of you, I see some of you at the gym can lift lots of weights. And if I were to say powerlifting, oh, you would say, aha, powerlifting includes yoga and aerobic. No, that's no powerlifting. You know, powerlifting. It is the deadlift. It is the squat and it is the bench press. Nothing else. And there are coaches all over the country. We just powerlift. Okay, well, you know, you can do some other things, but they would say that is the essentials. That's all you need to do. And today we're going to look at the essentials of the Christian life or the essentials of life on earth, a look at the Holy Spirit and the church. If if the first week we saw God the Father and the second week we saw Jesus Christ the Son, this week we're seeing the third person of the Trinity as God's presence with us, and then our life on earth until Jesus comes back. I actually uh, entitled this on my sermon notes, which have gone missing, the eight essentials of life on earth. And I know some of you are going to say, hey, you're the guy that always says, don't do the eight points or whatever. You're right. But today, because it's the Apostles' Creed, and you'll see it as we go through it, it lends itself for eight points. So we're doing eight points. All right? So here we're going to begin with what we looked at two weeks ago when we looked at God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what we learned from that is we must have a personal belief in the sovereign God. You and I must have a personal faith in a sovereign God. And in that, when we talked about God's sovereignty, we stopped on Psalm 139, 1 through 14, and we looked at God knows everything. He is omniscient. And because He knows everything, you are known. If He knows everything, He knows you. He knows us better than we know ourselves because He created us. And before He created 
the world. Ephesians 1.4, you can look it up for yourself. If you believe the Lord Jesus Christ, He chose you in Him before He even created the world. So before day one, when He said, let there be light, He had already decided this. That should give you great hope and great comfort. It shouldn't. Does it boggle your mind? Absolutely. But what it shouldn't do is frustrate you. Here's a God who's sovereign over the universe, and He knows you, and He knows me. And because He's omniscient, He's also omnipresent. That means you're never alone. That it, it can, you could get to a time in your life where you feel like nobody, um, nobody knows how I feel. God does. You're never alone. And I just read this week, I was reading through uh, 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 16, it's not up there, but there's going to come a time in your life uh, when, when you, will, you will need uh, to know that God, it's in 1 Samuel somewhere. I'll just quote it. You'll need to know when, when all others have left you, the world had turned their eyes against David. Why have you done this to us? We're being chased. And it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now that doesn't mean he was telling himself he was a great person and that he's got high self-esteem. That's not what that means, though that is the way some people teach it. What it means is when there's no one else, he knew he was not alone and he, he drew strength from God. And also, not only is he all-knowing, he's everywhere present, but he is all-powerful. And if you know he is all-powerful, you know then that you are loved. God is able to do anything, and he would go to no expense, he would spare no expense to save you and I, that you and I are loved, and so we are to enjoy and obey God. And then last week, we looked at the story of Jesus. So we not only believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but in his son, Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick in the dead. And so what we learn from that is not only a personal faith in the sovereign God, but we must have personal faith in the story of Jesus. That right there in what I just read, this is why the Apostles' Creed is so good. I just read that, and that was the story of Jesus. From his life eternal, and in Jesus Christ, his son, he has always been the son of God, to his birth, to his death, resurrection, and the fact that he's coming back. That's the story of Jesus, wrapped up right there. And so my encouragement to you last week was know the story. Do you know the story? And then know your story and how to share your story as it fits within the bigger story. That, like I said last week, I could come up here and and bore you with details of how God's sovereign hand in the story of my life from who my father and mother were, who my friends were, and how God has moved in, in his sovereign grace in my own life and how my story fits within his story. And so today we're going to look at how we should live life on earth. And there are eight things you should believe because literally if you were to look at the Apostles' Creed, there's just eight lines. So that's where I came up with my eight points. I'm not brilliant. I just basically went line by line and that's what I'm teaching you. Number one, it is I believe. You and I must know what we believe and live out what we know. That every single person in here, it is undeniable. And if we were to leave this place and go to that neighborhood or the neighborhood over there, or we were to go over here to where I live, or I'm over there, or we were to go this way, or down to Jiptucky, all the way up to Vail. Did I just say that? That just came out of my mouth. I'm so sorry. Gypsum, sorry, those of you. We all believe something, and we all live that way. Whether you state it, and you know what you believe, everybody lives by some sort of belief. Everybody. And they, they, they may not say it, but they live by it. So we must know what we believe. That's why we're studying the Apostles' Creed. And then it's not enough just to know it. I can know all sorts of facts about all, a lot of different things. I could know all sorts of facts about mountain biking. And I could just woo you with facts on mountain biking. But until I put my bottom on a, on a seat and take that thing up a mountain, which scares me to death, and then go down it, which scares me even more, I'm not a mountain biker. So you got to live out what you know. 
Amen? There's your first point. Number two, uh, you must know and believe in the whole, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We must believe in the Trinity, that if we're going to believe in God the Father and God the Son, we absolutely have to believe in God, God, the Holy Spirit. That God exists as one God in three persons. This is what separates us from all sorts of other religions. If the first week separated us from atheists and Eastern religions, then uh, Jesus separates us from Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and those who just think Jesus is a good man. Here in believing in the Holy Spirit as God... That separates us again further from those other religions that we believe there is a, there is one God who exists in three persons and that the Holy Spirit on the next slide you should see uh, in John 17, 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus speaking. For if I, Jesus, do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We have a helper. We have an advocate. We have what they, uh, parakletos in the Greek, a comforter. And I just want to show you what that helper is described. In the next slide, you should see in, in, in uh, John 14, Jesus said it this way, I'll send another helper. Like another of a different kind? No, if you go look at it in the Greek, it's another of the same kind. One like me. He called himself a helper and he said, I'll send you another helper. He is divine. The Holy Spirit, he is divine. In Matthew 28, 20, uh, we go and we baptize people, not in the names, plural, but in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is equivalent with God the Father and God the Son. In Acts 5, 3, and 4, uh, when Ananias and Sapphira lied, they said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And one verse later, did you not know you didn't lie to men but to God, equating the Holy Spirit as God? In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is the sign when, when, you, when you walk into Eagle Bible Church, if you walk in through those doors, not the side doors like the Lawrence's come through, but the front doors says, welcome home, because this is family. But as you leave, you will see 2 Corinthians 13, 14, talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter 1, 2, again, it talks about the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that the Holy Spirit, He is divine. He is not a force. This is not Star Wars. This is Scripture. All right. And though, and then we read more in John 16 about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we're a part of this world, but our conviction is different. But at first, we're all convicted. So at times when you feel guilty, don't run so quickly and say, you made me feel guilty. Why don't we always back up first and go, okay, the Lord, you're the sovereign of my life. My toes were just stepped on. Is this a, a shameful guilt that didn't come from you? Or is this a Holy Spirit guilt that I'm supposed to pause and say, maybe there is something for me to learn here? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And every time we sin, long story short, it's because we don't believe in Him in that moment. Oh, we may believe, absolutely, and be saved, absolutely. But when we sin, we are not believing in Jesus. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. That Jesus saying, He is the one who will die for us and then impute His righteousness to us, of which we'll read in a minute. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And then He goes on to say in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus is gracious. You couldn't handle all that I wanted to tell you. But when the Spirit of truth not only is divine, but everything that comes from Him is true, He will guide you into the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. The Holy Spirit never speaks on His own authority. He only and always speaks under the authority of God the Father or Jesus Christ His Son. But whenever He hears, He will speak, and He will come to, to declare to you the things that are to come. And then He wraps it up by saying... And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father is mine, Jesus says. Therefore, I said he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so there is an order in the Trinity. There's an absolute order. 
in that when any any study of the Trinity or of the Holy Spirit has to include this, there are many people who go off theologically on the rails of the Holy Spirit. There are some who who basically believe he's just a force and a name and he's not a person. We don't relate to him. There are some who who think he is basically higher than God the Father. But any and every study of the Holy Spirit, I, I this week I think this is the best summary. If you're going to study the Holy Spirit, you have to say this succinctly. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who brings glory to God the Father by exalting Jesus Christ the Son. Period. Any good study of the Holy Spirit has to say those three things. He is divine. He brings glory to God the Father by exalting Jesus Christ the Son. That's what I read in Philippians, and that is what the Spirit does. He takes what is Jesus's, and he declares it to us. And so I read, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's exalting Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So there is a hierarchy in the Trinity of which the Holy Spirit is like the executive, chief executive officer. You, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal in their divinity, but there is a hierarchy, and it's a beautiful picture. And if we get that, then we will know how to relate to each other in marriage. We will know how to relate to each other as child and parent, and we will know how to relate to each other as worker and owner. And so that is the Holy Spirit. And then, as you saw from those verses, that His duty is to convict. He is the one who convicts us. Yes, sometimes some people misquote Scripture. Uh, they do things wrong, and they shame us, and that's not good. That's unhealthy guilt. Like today I was talking about um, going to Denver to celebrate my son's birthday. I invited someone. They kind of looked at me. And I said, it's no big deal. It's just his birthday. And he's like, oh. And I was like, kidding. You don't have to come. That's shameful guilt. That's not Holy Spirit guilt. Holy Spirit guilt comes when you go, you know what? That's right. That I misspoke there. And then he comforts us. He is our helper. He is our guide. He's our advocate. And he guides us. And from another text, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he gifts us that every single person in here has a gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you read closely 1 Corinthians 12, it's to build up the church, the local body to which we'll talk about. Not, not the church universal. You can never, ever have the church universal without the church local. More on that in a minute. And so each of you has a gift to build up the local body, and he glorifies, glorifies God the Father by exalting Jesus. That is, number two, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Number three, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church. This is where uh, a week ago I said we don't say no way to the Apostles' Creed. We don't say what to the Apostles' Creed. We say sure with a, an asterisk because we have to talk about this word Catholic. Everybody agrees with uh, holy, holy, and then you'll see the communion of the saints. Three times holy is used here in the Greek. It's the Holy Catholic Church. It's a pure church. It's a pure ecclesia, one who is called out. Catholic here does not mean Catholic. It's Notice it's not capitalized. This is not Holy Roman Catholic Church. But we must believe in the universal church. That's what it means in Latin. It means universal. That there is a church that exists universally. That you can't see all the local churches at once. But you can see this one. But it's not the Catholic Church. And just a word, just one slide on the Catholic Church. I know some of you were raised in the Catholic Church. And I wanted to show you here just why we don't agree with Catholicism. And number one, that they take... they here. Let me read this canon number 11. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the soul only imputation of the justice of justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of grace and charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost. And here's the key difference between us as Protestants and others and is inherent in them. We do not believe that grace is inherent in us. Why do we not believe that? Because I could go through verse by verse by verse here in Psalms, Psalm 139, in sin did my mother conceive me. I could go to Romans 5, through one man sin entered the word, therefore all have sinned. 
that there is nothing good inherent in us before Jesus saves us. Nothing. And in them, and here's the key, or even that grace whereby we are justified is only, only the favor of God. If you believe that grace is only the favor of God, the Council of Trent tells you, let him be an anathema, that is cursed. That's literally what they hold to to today, and any good Catholic would tell you that. Now the sad thing is there are many who are in that church who don't know their own doctrine and who probably wouldn't agree with this. That as I've always stated, we don't believe in the Roman Catholic Church, but we believe there may be some believers in the Roman Catholic Church. There just is. I've met some. But this is what their canons say. This is their creed, and this is what they hold to. And this is what separates us from them. We do not believe in a Catholic church because they take the scriptures and they say, well, it's the Bible plus the church's authority. And so we're going to add the Apocrypha and that the Pope can come in and when he's seated, when he's seated in his seat, ex cathedra from the seat, that there is something special going on between him and God. And when he speaks, it is divine. That's what they believe. And we don't believe that. That their Savior is Christ plus Mary. I just put plus Mary, but I could have put plus Mary dot, dot, dot. It is, I've got to believe in Jesus and the uh, the divinity of Mary. And then I've got to go to Mass because there's an ongoing sacrifice. That's why when you go, you, still, you see Jesus still on the cross. Because it's an ongoing sacrifice. No, He said it is finished. And so our Savior is not Christ plus. And that their salvation is grace plus. And then you could walk through all the things that they have to do. And if you don't quite measure up, still not over for you because you can go to purgatory. And so this is what separates us. We are Protestant and we are not um, anti-anybody. What we are is for the truth of the Bible. That's why when we stand against something, we're not sitting here saying, oh, we Protestants uh, have have uh, come to the conclusion that we're enemies of you. No, no, no. What we're saying is we are going to stay true to this and we are going to say with Martin Luther, unless the Scriptures say it or by good conscience, I can do no other. Here I stand. And this is what we will do. We will stand on this Not this plus the Apocrypha. Not this plus what the pontiff says, the Father. We're not gonna, we're gonna stand on what this says and what this says accurately. We're not going to misread something in here about gold and saying, if you come to know Jesus, go, cause God's gonna bless, just send, send the Rumley some seed money when we go on sabbatical and the Lord will bless you. Give me 10, He'll give you 30. We're not gonna do that. Some of you aren't laughing. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Seed money. We don't do that. Just get, just send it in a, send it in a sealed envelope to Judd Rumley, whatever. No, we're not going to do that. That's not what the Bible, we don't misuse the scriptures. And so we must believe, we must believe in the Trinity and we must believe in the universal. That's what Catholic means. It doesn't mean big C Catholic. It means little C universal church. That there is a church, and here's a verse, Hebrews 12, 23, that will help you with that. And the assembly of the firstborn. We are all called the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among us. Not that he was born, but he goes before us. And he has all rights. But then we follow through who are enrolled in heaven. That there's a Lamb's book of life, and you're enrolled in heaven. There are people, there's a church all over this world right now. It is 8 o'clock. There could, it's 8 o'clock in England. There could be a night service going on in England. That would be really cool. Last week, uh, seven hours before this, it was 4 a.m. Or a couple weeks ago, the dailies were going to All Souls Church, where, where I got to attend, where John Stott preached. There's a church there. There's a church in it. So it's the, those enrolled in heaven. That is the universal church. You've got to believe in a universal church. But let me tell you, that universal church does not exist apart from the local church. And so you must believe 
in the local church. And it's called in the Apostles' Creed, the communion of the saints. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or universal church, in the communion, the fellowship of the saints. Three times in this you see the word holy, holy, and saints is, is a derivative of that. This pure church, we must believe in the local church. You and I must believe in the local church. The universal church doesn't exist apart from the local church, just as a humanity, right? Humanity. If I talk about humanity, you'd say, yeah, humanity, it covers the globe. But how do you know there is a humanity? Because there are humans that you can visibly see, right? And that it, the same it is with the local church. The local church is made up, and you see Paul writes to the local church. I just put his letters in order. His first missionary journey, he wrote to the churches, plural, of Galatia. There were more than one in that region. Then he wrote to, to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, first and second Thessalonians. Then he wrote to the Romans and then the Corinthians and then to the Ephesians. We just completed that in Sunday school. To the Philippians, the Colossians, and then Philemon. And it says Philemon to the church that is in your house. And this is where guys say, oh, that means we can have house churches. Well, yeah, we can have churches in homes, but he's probably talking about, if you go and do the research, if you see when Paul's writing this letter and Tychicus, or actually Philemon carries these, he's probably talking about the church at Colossae that met in Philemon's house. Case closed. It's not where a dad and a mom get together and they teach their kids and they call that church. That's not church. Can I say that again? That is not church. In all of these, Paul's writing to a group of people who are led by elders who are preaching the Word of God, who are administering the ordinances and are disciplining when necessary. That is the local church. The local church is not uh, just when two people get together. That's why I would I used to not take a stand on this, but I do now. I would not advise to take communion apart from the local church. Communion wasn't given to to individuals. It was given to the church. Baptism was given to the church. And his last letters, Titus, was the pastor over uh, Crete. And first and second Timothy, he was over Ephesus. And so that is the local church. We believe in the fellowship, the communion of the saints. And this is not just about food, though most often food is involved. Um, and that is a good thing. We like food. Uh, but it's about the gathering and the sharing of life together. Uh, one person in this body, when he talks to other people, he constantly does the something I always love. He This is what he says. He says, we're family. We do life together. We, we eat together. We study the Bible together. We, we play sports together. We cry together. We, we get married together. We struggle through life together. We build each other's decks. And so it's a communion. It's much bigger than what we do here on Sundays, but it's not absent from what we do here on Sundays. Did you catch that? It is far bigger, but it's not without what we do here on Sundays. And I would say somebody, this is what Mark Dever says, and I'll say it, and you can disagree with Mark Dever if you want, but he would say, if you're not involved in a local body of believers, do you really belong to the church? Universal. Something to consider. Next point. Paul says this, or the, the creed says this, and this is huge. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and what, what do we share in? What, what draws us together? Are we all the same height? No. There are some people in here who are far taller than I am. Are we all, it's all because we like the same sports team? No. There, there are some people who enjoy the Cowboys, and then there are a bunch of sinners. I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. Just kidding. That's not what brings us together. What brings us together, or, but I mean, I mean, if you're going to rank them, it's Cowboys and then the Broncos. We can like the Broncos. It's good. <laughs> but what brings us together is the forgiveness of sins. That if we were to sit here, and again, I could do this and it would, it would be like church in, in, in 
Africa or South America, it actually lasts all day and nobody would get, you know, antsy that it's four in the afternoon and we're still at church. But I could ask you, hey, tell me the story. When I say forgiveness of sins, tell me that story, your story and how it fits with that. And you could go on and you could talk about how the Lord forgave you. We must believe in forgiveness of sins by grace alone. That's what gathers us here today. That we've all been saved by grace through faith. Here are just a few verses to secure that. Here's where that phrase comes from in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We see He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We we were in the domain of darkness. Okay, let me just make this real clear for you. You and I were in the domain of darkness. We were ruled by Satan, the prince of the power of the air, whether it was when we were young or when we were adults that we were transferred. But our father, we were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience, says Ephesians 2. We were without hope in this world. But he delivered us. It's not because I attended so many masses. It's not because I followed the, um, the seven sacraments. It is because when he was good and ready, as Paul says in Galatians, but when God was ready to show me Jesus in my own heart, he delivered us. We were in this domain and we were delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. We were bought back the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. I don't have time to go into what I was going to read. I'd have time, but I'm choosing not to. Um, In Growing in Christ by J.I. Packer, he does a phenomenal job in three paragraphs telling you what sin is. And it would be good for me. I'll start with myself and then I will exhort you. It'd be good for me and all of us to, to read that and to think through what is sin? Because we have such a light view of sin. We, re- we really do narrow it down to don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And if you're not doing those things, you're not sinning. And that's it's far broader than that. Because salvation is far greater than that. We've been transferred. And here it says, Paul had heard of their faith that they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Go, no, go back to First Thessalonians. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That we were in the domain of darkness and there is wrath to come on those who are in that domain. Now, I fully believe in God's predestining abilities and His choosing, and I believe that there is a domain of darkness and we are called to go share the gospel boldly and clearly under God's sovereign plan, and we are to do it with joy in our hearts because there are people whom wrath is coming upon them, and we don't want that. That's not good. But we've received the forgiveness of sins. The next point is this. I believe in the resurrection of the body, not only in the third person in the Trinity and the universal and local church and the forgiveness we have by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But I believe that one day my body's going to be raised and I will be with you and we will be together on the new heavens and the new earth that we must believe that God has given us a physical life to steward. That's a terrible spelling of steward by me, not Travis. It's a it's an English version, steward word. And enjoy. I just caught that. That's mine, Travis. That's on me. So, what does that mean for us? It means this in, in, in 1 Corinthians. I believe that verse is next. If not, there it is. Or do you not know that your body, physical body, that's why Jesus uses the, the term body for the church. We are all members of his body because he uses the body because it gives us an illustration. We can understand the body the church body by looking at our own body. As if you've probably heard Jim Kinzer say before to people who don't attend church on a regular basis, how can you be a part of a body if you're a hand and you're cut off and you're, that would look awkward. Would it look really weird if I 
literally, and you, if I could do this and took my hand off and threw it over there, you'd be going, that guy's strange, right? Yes, you would, because that's strange that the hand's not meant to be over here by itself. It's a part of something bigger. But it's also a physical body. Do not know that your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. We have the Holy Spirit from God, and He resides in us. You are not your own. That's a, that's a great sentence for humanity. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Take care of your body. I'm not saying, not going into, you know, exercise for Jesus and you know, the whole Jesus doing a bench press with a cross on his back. Not that. Just take care of your body. But why? Not take care of your body. Can you go like, oh, I got six pack abs? By the way, side note, have you seen Tim Hawkins when he talks about his son and six pack abs? You seen that? Where his son comes in, he's like, hey, dad, I got six pack abs. He goes, what do you have? He's like, money. Uh, it's a really funny joke. But we're not telling you to take, go for six pack abs. Just take care of your body. Why? Because you have a great purpose to serve. Why do I take care of my body? Because I have a wife that I must protect and serve. I have children that I want to I want to actually see when they get married. See, that didn't happen for me. See, I got married and and my and my dad wasn't there. He wasn't he didn't really take good care of his body. And maybe if he had a just a slightly different view. Again, God's sovereign, so I'm not saying, that, you know, go back in time and this, but just in the hu- human aspect of the, take care of your body so that you can live long and boldly and clearly preach the gospel. That's why we stay physically fit, not for vanity, but for purposes greater than our own. And also, um, because we believe in the resurrection of the body, Yes, when we are of good courage, we would rather be away from the Lord, away from the body at home with the Lord. We know that when our body dies, we go to be with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get into it here, but when it goes, when we talk about the resurrection of the body, a great sign of faith is to be buried, not cremated. Now, I understand there are reasons why some people do it, but if you're asking for my biblical patterned opinion, I believe we should be buried. Abraham was buried. Uh, Moses was buried. All these people, Jesus was buried. We, we are buried in faith, knowing one day we'll rise again. It's a testimony that even in your death, you can be testifying to the Lord Jesus that we buried this person. They're going to be raised again. And they're going to be with Jesus forever. And so the next point is this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That we believe there is actually a better forever future. It is better. It is not your best life now, no matter how many books are sold. Trust me. And it's forever. This is again why this is so succinct. This is so captured in the Apostles' Creed. We could spend a whole semester as we've done talking about heaven. What's heaven going to look like? Or what is the new heavens and the new earth going to look like? It's going to be forever. Think about that. Like you're probably thinking this guy's going on forever. It's his last Sunday to preach. So he's just letting her go. That's not what I'm doing. I'm landing the plane here in about 20, 30 minutes. But you know there's an end in sight. In the new heavens and new earth, there's no end and you won't want it to end. And here's the beautiful thing, John 5, 24. Check this out. Truly, truly. You know what that is in the Greek? Chamein, chamein. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has that. I wish I would have. I didn't. Has should be bolded and colored. Has. Present tense, eternal life. You have it. You ha- It's yours. You're getting a taste of it. He does not. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's a done deal, and you get tastes of it now. Just little tastes on those mornings when you when you wake up and you go, "This is absolutely glorious." 
not only the creation, but my life, etc. It's just a taste. And then in Colossians uh, 1, it is not only a, an, an experience you get a taste of, but it's a foundation on which your life is built. We always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all saints. Here's the key. Here's the key, verse 5. Because, because of the hope laid up in, for you in heaven. You mean to tell me it's a proper motivation that I have faith in Jesus and I love his people because there's something better out there. Yes, that's a proper motivation. And I think, and I say this more to me than to you, if I thought more about eternity, it would make a radical change in how I live presently because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And finally, here's the last point. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It ends with amen. This is true. And we must believe this is true. This isn't some facade. This isn't just some story from the past. These aren't just great stories of faith that may or may not have happened. Jonah may or may not have been swallowed by a big fish. No, we believe it's true. Because Jesus believed it's true. And if Jesus believes it, I believe. And we believe all of this is true. Personal faith in the sovereign God. Personal faith in the story of Jesus. And these essentials of life until He comes again. And I know some of you may be thinking, well, what about doubt? What about doubt? Can believers doubt? I'll be honest with you, there have been seasons of my life when I've gone through, I won't call it severe, but it's gone through doubt. Like, you wake up one day and you're like, especially when you're in seminary, you're like, I'm giving my entire life. Not that if you're not in seminary, you're not. So don't hear that. Is this real? This is But there's an internal internal witness who go back to where we started. I believe in the Holy Spirit who tells me I'm His own. That I'm God's. And so, absolutely, it's okay to doubt. In fact, I show a picture of a book, title of a book, um, called um, Help My Unbelief by Barnabas Piper. I think it's up there. No, didn't make it. Weird. How about Mark 9? Did that make it? Okay. So here's the scripture from which the title of the book comes. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. To which he says in 24, I believe. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so Barnabas Piper, in a book out on the internet, you can get it right here called Help My Unbelief. And what it is about, right here, go to the cover. Check that out. Technology is so cool. Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not, Not the Enemy of Faith. That you and I may go through seasons where we go, I just don't know. And at that time, we'll just walk with you and we'll keep showing you the Scriptures. We'll keep praying for you. and We'll keep uh, praying that, that the Holy Spirit would testify to you. Help my unbelief. Because there are many people who go through the Christian life and they've never had the freedom to wrestle through that. That they've been told, oh no, you can't. You can't uh, be unbelieving. Or you're not. You've never truly said, no, 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 no. Because if you sit back, and if I sit back, and if we truly wrestle with what I've preached here for seven years and what you've been reading in your Bible and what you've studied in your small groups, if you sit back and you and you think about it, a couple things. It's absolutely unbelievable. 
And at the same time, it's absolutely logically believable. There is a God who who's over this, but I've never seen him. I haven't either. But thank God for First Peter. Though I have not seen him, I will. I, I rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory that one day I'm going to see him. And that's why we have faith, <laughs> which is a gift. It makes good sense. But I have to believe because I look at creation and I can't. I can't in my mind. Not because I'm not a good scientist. I got A's in all my classes in science. He's not looking at me. Chemistry too. Boom. But I can't believe this universe just came out of nowhere. I can't. Logic won't let me. Because logic is just as important as science. And logic says, if something exists, it had to have a creator. Period. I don't need to go into any more detail. How it came, we can discuss the nuances. But I have to believe that. And I have to believe, if I'm going to read about George Washington and take tests on George Washington or Abe Lincoln or William Carey, and if I can trust a document that was well written and testified by many people that these per people actually existed, then I can read this, which has been testified by many people and read about Jesus and say, I have to believe. But if you are wrestling, I've been there. And it's not a fun place to be. Because you sit there and you think to yourself, what if I'm wrong? And then you go back and you think about what your mama said. I think about my seminary professor, John Anna, who kept getting degrees because he wanted to believe. And one day his wife said to him, Johnny, Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Here's a guy who went and got PhD. He's brilliant. PhD after PhD, master after master, trying to figure it out. And it took his wife many years to say, baby, it's okay to wrestle with this, but never move on from the simple faith. That's why it's called faith. And I'll end with this. You and I are going to die in faith. We're not going to die and, and sit there at your deathbed. You're not going to die. You're going to die going, I'm going to close my eyes right now. And I don't, it's different for different people. You've heard all these stories, but I'm have, have been and presently am. And for the future, I'm trusting that when I close my eyes, when I wake up again, I'm going to be in heaven. That's beautiful. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it may be a struggle at times, but I believe we'll die in faith and we'll die in peace. I don't want to die like the, uh, I forget, I think it was the president of Venezuela who upon his deathbed, and it is recorded, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Because I don't think he was, at that time, if he's passing into eternity, I don't think he's seen the Lord Jesus Christ in the cloud of saints ushering him in. So if you're wrestling with your faith, wrestle with it. If you're wrestling with with creation evolution, wrestle with it. We've got guys all over this congregation who will walk with you through it, who who are far more versed in it than I am. If you're wrestling with, can this be true? Can my sins, can I really say I believe in the forgiveness of sins? You're telling me that all my past, all that evil that I did, um, God can forgive? Absolutely. What makes you think that you're sins are that big compared to God's grace. No temptation has overtaken you such as as common to man, but he is faithful. 
And so we're, we're all in this together. And so I'll end with this. I think I've got a, an application here. Maybe. What's, just go back a couple. What's, what's there? I don't have my notes, so I'm going off. We'll go back two slides. Oh, woo, we can't leave without this one. After you get, if you are doubting, go to Revelation 21. I was just telling my wife, did you know that the song that we sang today is about these verses? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And it says there, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And here's a beautiful verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more crying. No more pain. Isn't that good? That's in the Bible. See, we believe the Bible to be true. And death shall be no more. There really is a resurrection of the body. There really is forgiveness of sins. And neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And then it goes on to say, and this is what we sing, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, and this is what we sang, I don't know if you remember it, but to the thirsty, I will give from springs of water, water of life without payment. We sang that this morning. We'll sing it again after communion. Father, thank you that somebody, we don't, and, and thank you in your providence, you didn't tell us who wrote it, otherwise there would be theses and PhDs written on whoever wrote the Apostles' Creed. But thank you for preserving for centuries a systematic theology that talks of you, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you've worked everything out, that you sent your Son to die on a cross for our sins. If we, Lord, could write it, we would fail. But you've contained it in a scripture for us to visit over and over again. Thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.